My name is Eric. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 9, verses 7 through 10. But the Lord rules forever. He assumes his throne for the sake of justice. He will establish justice in the world rightly. He will judge all people fairly. The Lord is a safe place for the oppressed, a safe place in difficult times. Those who know your name trust you because you have not abandoned any who seek you, Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my earlier letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, but I wasn't talking about the sexually immoral people in the outside world by any means, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or people who worship false gods. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world entirely. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls themselves brother or sister, who is sexually immoral, greedy, someone who worships false gods, an abusive person, a drunk, or a swindler. Don't even eat with anyone like this. What do I care about judging outsiders? Isn't it your job to judge insiders? God will judge outsiders, expel the evil one from among you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is John. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 6. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt to you. Why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's eye or sister's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You deceive yourself. First, take the log out of your eye, then you'll, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. Don't give holy things to dogs, and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp on the pearls and then turn around and attack you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We ask today that you would continue to speak to us through your word, the word that's living and active, the word that produces, the word that works and does things in our hearts and our lives because your spirit is at work in and through it in us. And so would you do that work today? Would you give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that are receptive to the transformative work of your word in our lives through your spirit? In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you, everyone. Hi to everyone in the room, and hello to everyone who's watching online, either now or later. We love you and miss you. 
We have just three weeks left in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. So back in early January, we began talking through Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I've said over and over again throughout the series that this sermon is about kingdom discipleship. I want us to connect those two words together, kingdom and discipleship, because Jesus does. Jesus arrives on the scene and begins to proclaim the proximity of God's kingdom. He says, God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is near. And then he invites people into the kingdom. He invites us to repent to come and follow him and to learn how to live in this kingdom. How do we actually live as citizens in the kingdom of God? And not just citizens, but as those who have been adopted as sons and daughters by the Most High God. And then Jesus begins a sermon. And he starts the sermon by pronouncing blessing. Pronouncing that with the kingdom comes God's divine favor. He says that the kingdom has come to everyone in every situation and in every condition. So whoever you are and wherever you are and whatever you've done and whatever has been done to you, the kingdom is yours. Jesus comes to each of us and says, the kingdom is yours. You belong in this kingdom. The door has been thrown open. Come in and take your place in the family. Come in and take your place at the table. And then he goes on and says, the kingdom is not only coming for each of us. The kingdom is not only coming for you, but the kingdom will also come through you. Jesus says that his reign will expand in the world through the ordinary, everyday lives of finite, vulnerable, and messy people with complex stories. People like you and me. And all of our humanness. And all of our brokenness. The kingdom will come to us and begin to restore us and will work through us for the sake of other people in the world. The rest of the sermon then from there goes on, Jesus goes on and gives us specific teachings about how to live in the kingdom, how it is that we're supposed to live as humans. And he gives us really a comprehensive vision of what it means to be fully human and fully alive. As he goes through the sermon, he's talking about nearly every area of our life that we can imagine. He talks about our relationships, our relationships with our family and with our friends and even with our foes. And then he talks about our sexuality. He talks about our religious practices, how we pray and give and fast, how we do that in relationship with others. He talks about our finances. He talks about our emotions. He's thinking about our entire humanity and how we bring it into his kingdom that we might learn how to actually live like him. And today he comes back around to talking again about relationships. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, don't judge so that you won't be judged. That's clear enough. We can just be done. Like, Micah, come on back up. Let's sing some more songs and go home, right? It's clear. It's straightforward. No complications here for us to think about, right? Jesus is telling us, don't judge anyone or anything for any reason. Except that we make a thousand judgments a day. 
<laughs> that so much of our lives are about assessing things, about making judgments. If you're a school teacher, can you imagine being a school teacher without making judgments? You're just like handing out A's to everybody, like Oprah hands out cars. You get an A, and you get an A, and you get an A, and you, I don't care that you didn't do the work. It doesn't matter. Just go on. No, we're making judgments all the time about students' performance in games and in sports. We're constantly making assessments about people's performance and about whether or not they're adhering to the rules. Was that ball fair or foul? Did that player travel or not travel? In other words, did they play in college or in the NBA? Because in the NBA, it doesn't matter. You can walk the ball down the court. It's now legal, I guess. When we're thinking about business decisions or financial decisions, we're thinking about, is this wise or unwise? We're wondering, is this a wise decision to get into business with this person? Is it a good decision to hire this person or should I hire that person? We're making those kind of judgments. If you're in a dating relationship, you're making an assessment, a judgment. Is this the kind of person that I want to build a marriage with? We're making assessments and judgments. When we go to the doctor, we're hoping that our doctor is going to make medical assessments. They're going to make medical judgments. They're going to say what's healthy and what's not healthy. Rather than saying, oh, it looks great. Your pancreas is dying, but you're fine. We're, we're wanting judgments to be made there. And our whole legal system, our entire legal system is based around making judgments about saying whether or not something is just or unjust, whether it is legal or illegal. And underneath that is a whole round of moral discernments that we're making, moral judgments about what is right and wrong and good and evil, what contributes to the flourishing of society and to humanity and life, and what actually takes away from that. So how do we not judge and yet do all of those things? which are critical for every aspect of our life. And actually, if we keep reading, it seems like Jesus wants us to make some judgments. Jesus goes on just a few verses later and says, don't give holy things to dogs and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp on the pearls and then turn around and attack you. Jesus is telling us to make a distinction between things that are holy and things that are precious and things that are not. That requires a judgment. Is this a holy or, present or precious thing? And then he tells us that we shouldn't give those things indiscriminately to those who don't understand their value. To those who will tear those things apart or trample on them. To actually to obey Jesus here requires that we form some kind of judgment. In fact, every act of discernment is an act of judgment. It's making a judgment or an assessment of something. And other scriptures, of course, tell us to judge as well, particularly to judge one another's lives inside of the church, to judge the fruits of one another's lives. There's constant teachings about judging teachers and judging what it is that we say and whether or not it aligns with the word of God, whether or not it aligns with God's character and his revelation. We even have passages that tell us to judge even to the point of having to disassociate with others. 1 Corinthians 5, you heard it just a second ago. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He says, but now I'm writing to you and telling you not to associate with anyone who 
calls themselves a brother or sister, in other words, anyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, anyone who claims to be a Christian who says, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, my life looks like Jesus's, but then who also is sexually immoral, greedy, who worships false gods, is an abusive person, a drunk, or a swindler. In other words, someone says, yeah, 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 yeah I'm a Christian, but I don't actually live like it at all. I'm not, I'm not trying. I'm not repentant. I'm not getting help. I'm not being honest about anything that's going on. In my life. I'm just claiming the name of Jesus, but actually living completely opposite or contrary to the way and the life of teachings of Jesus. And Paul says, don't even eat with someone like this. Why do I care about your judgment of outsiders, your judgment of the world? Isn't it your job to judge insiders? To judge one another, God will judge outsiders. God will judge the world, but expel the evil one from among you. So we have these other passages that talk clearly about judgment. So what exactly does Jesus mean when he tells us not to judge? What is he trying to teach us? The word that Jesus uses here covers a whole range of meanings. So it's not really helpful to say, well, Jesus uses this one particular word and it means this. He uses a word that means to judge. And you can apply it for any context that we think of. The vocabulary is not conclusive, but I think the context is helpful. The next verse says this, you'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt to you. Before we look at the language here, there's, it's a, that's a bit scary. <laughs> that by whatever standard or measure that you judge others, that will be the standard or measure by which we'll be judged. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't, the way that I am prone to judge people is not the standard that I hope anybody ever uses in my life. Right? But we're so quick to go into those places. But here the language says this. It says, you will be judged. Interestingly, what we have is a passive verb. You will be judged with no subjects. No, no indication of who is doing the judging. And in the Greek New Testament, whenever the subject is not named to the passive verb, we can infer that the subject is God. It's called the divine passive, that God is the one that's actually doing this. So Jesus is likely here talking about God's judgment. Particularly the judgment only God can make. The ultimate, final judgment of a person's life. Throughout the scriptures, God has declared over and over again to be the judge and the king. He's the one who has the authority to determine what's right and wrong. And the one who has the ability and the responsibility to enact justice. To make what's wrong right. And throughout the scriptures, God has declared to be the one who is just and true and holy, who can be trusted in all of his judgments. Psalm 9 says this, he will establish justice in the world, and he'll do it rightly. <laughs> and he will judge all people. And how will he do it? Fairly. <laughs> As Christians, we believe that ultimately the judge is Jesus. The God is and will judge the world in and through his son, Jesus. Our creed even says this. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We actually want this. Because in order to have justice, there has to be judgment. In order for things to be set right, we have to say what's wrong. In order for things to be made good, evil has to be eradicated. Right? So we want this. We long for this. This is good news for us. Because at the end of the age, each of us will be judged by 
Jesus. Because Jesus alone has the right to judge finally because Jesus alone judges rightly. Jesus alone has the right to enact final judgment because Jesus alone will judge rightly. He'll establish justice rightly. He alone has the right and responsibility to do this. Not us. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7. We can also put it this way. Jesus commands us not to condemn anyone. That's what he's talking about when he says, do not judge. He's saying, don't play God. We don't have the right to, and we wouldn't do it rightly if we did. Right? But we typically think we do, right? I mean, there's a part of us that's like, well, if Jesus needed to take a day off, and it happened to be like the end of the age, and someone else needed to step in and kind of judge everything, I think I'd do a pretty good job. Like 99, 99 and a half percent. We tend to believe that we would actually have an accurate assessment of those things. We're confident in our point of view. I think this is actually a unique temptation for Christians. That we particularly think we would be really good at this. And therefore, we do it a lot in conversations. I think what happens is, is that as we come to faith, as we grow in knowing God, as we know his story, as we know his word, as we know his character, as we get to know him, we get a sense for his view on things. And so then we begin to believe that we also know his judgment. And we can become really quick to condemn. How many times have we, or how many times have we heard other Christians say, that person is going to hell? How many times have we heard or have we said that person is irredeemable? That person is beyond saving. That person is beyond the reach of God's goodness, of God's mercy, of God's love, of God's care. How many times have we done that without actually fully knowing that person? We don't actually fully know them. We know a part of them and then we jump to that conclusion. But we don't know their past we don't know their story. We don't know what's going on fully in their lives. We don't know all that's happened to them to bring them to this moment. And we have no clue what the Holy Spirit is up to in that person's life. We may have little glimpses here and there. That's what we get of our own lives. Sometimes I'm completely unaware of what the Spirit has been doing until, until all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's what you were doing. And yet we claim that we know that definitively in somebody else's life. And Jesus says, don't condemn. This does not mean that we don't make moral judgments. There is a difference between recognizing and naming what's right and wrong and good and evil as revealed by Jesus and condemning another person. There is a difference between discernment and condemnation. We're called to discernment. We're called to actually name evil as evil and good as good, true as true, false as false, wrong as wrong, right as right. We're called to that. But there's a difference between doing that around a thought, a belief, an idea, an action, and actually condemning someone completely and censuring them. John Wesley put it this way. He says, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. It's thinking about another person 
in a way that is contrary to love, contrary to the love of God. Jesus then goes on and he shows us the way of love in the rest of the passage. He says this, why, verse uh, 7, verse 3, why do you see the splinter that's in your brother or sister's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye or the plank in your own eye for you 90s alternative Christian rock fans. This is the verse that inspired plank eye. Why do you not recognize that? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take that splinter out of your brother or sister's eye when there's a log in your own? You deceive yourselves. Remember in the ancient world, the condition of someone's eyes told us something about the condition of their hearts. So when the scriptures say there's a splinter in someone's eye that's impairing their vision, it's another way of talking about that when there's sin in our souls, impairing the way that we live, impairing us coming into full humanity. And God says that it's actually a good desire to want to actually remove that from someone else's eye. It's a good desire to want to help someone. It's a good desire to want to speak truth, to speak life, to correct, to do all, to share the gospel. It's a good desire to do all those things to help out our brother, our sister, our neighbor. However, Jesus says, you have to do something else first. He says, check yourself. (laughs) Examine our own lives. He says, we have to begin with examining ourselves. That we are called as the people of God to live lives of prayerful self-reflection. That we should be the people who in humility are constantly asking the Spirit of God to reveal our own sin to us. Asking the Spirit of God to lead us into repentance. And repentance is not a one-time event, but an ongoing lifelong posture that we have toward God. Jesus, in other words, is saying that the attention that we give our sin should exceed the attention that we give to others' sin. The attention that we give to our own sin should exceed the attention that we give to others. It's usually the opposite. It's usually the opposite. We tend to minimize all of our faults, all of our mistakes, all of our sin. We're like, well, you know, yes, I did that, but I missed lunch that day and I just did that because I was hangry. It's really not a big deal. You know, it's like if I had lunch, usually if I have lunch every day, I'm a pretty good person. And I I don't have this problem of, of being angry and mean. It's just when I miss lunch. But that person, that person's just evil. You don't know if they miss lunch that day or not. The excuse works for us. It doesn't work for other people. We minimize our faults. We magnify everybody else's. This is what we do. We give quick excuse for ourselves and quickly dismiss other people. Perhaps the first sin that Jesus wants us to become aware of in this passage is our condemnation of other people. Of how quickly, how often, how easily, and on what thin grounds we will condemn other people. It's actually possible to read this passage in a way that says it's our condemnation of others that turns the the splinter in someone else's eye into a log on our own. That the way that we are looking at the splinter in someone else's eye 
is becoming a log on our own. I heard a pastor describe it this way one time. Imagine this is a splinter, because if I held up a splinter, you wouldn't be able to see it. So I'm going to have to use a pencil. But imagine that this is in someone's eye. I know this gets really dark all of a sudden at this, at this point. But imagine that's in, in, in someone else's eye, and we can, we can see it there. And when it's here, we can actually see the splinter in the eye, and we can see all of the rest of them. But when we focus solely on the splinter in someone else's eye, and that's all we can see, when we focus solely on the sin or the error or the wrongdoing or whatever it is that's going on in their life, the character defect, the whatever words that you want to use, all of a sudden the splinter in their eye becomes a log in ours. And we can't see anything else but that. We become so focused on other people's sin that's all that we can see about them. Our own condemnation of them blinds us to the totality of their personhood. We cannot see the person. We can only see their sin. But Jesus says in order to love someone, we need to see them clearly, which means we need to see all of them. Yes, we can be honest that there is a splinter in their eye, but we also have to recognize that this is someone made in God's image this is someone worthy of love. This is someone that Jesus brought his kingdom for. And if we can't see all of that, we'll never actually be able to help. But in order to see others clearly, we have to first see ourselves clearly. This is what Jesus calls us to a self-examination, a way of reflection and repentance that we might once again receive the mercy of God for our own sin. Then we might be so aware of our need for mercy, that we might then receive mercy and then can extend it to others because it's only those who receive mercy who can extend mercy. We cannot give what we have not received. If we have not received the mercy of God, we will try to extend the condemnation of God. Have you ever tried to remove something from someone else's eye? Anybody? Trying to remove something, maybe your kid or a friend or loved one's eye. How many of you had somebody try to remove something from your eye? You got something in there and maybe a contact got stuck and somebody came to remove it. How did that go? It's a really enjoyable experience, isn't it? And how did that person approach you? Did they come at you, you know, sort of like loud and pushy and angry and fear-filled? Oh, come on, get over here. We got to get that out of your eye real quick. Because if we don't, we're going to have to amputate the whole thing. Here, let me just... Did that go well? Like if we come at somebody who's hurt in that way, what are they going to do? They're just going to oh, run somewhere else. No, if we're going to remove something from someone's eye, we have to begin with compassion, not condemnation. Why did you put that splinter in your eye? <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, what happened to you? I'm so sorry. We move forward with love, with patience, with gentleness, with kindness, with meekness, with self-control. We draw near tenderly in love and offer care and correction in the very gospel itself. This is how we're supposed to extend mercy. This is how we extend the mercy of the gospel to, one another, to each other. This is one of the things I love so much about Alpha 
Alpha doesn't come in with condemnation. It comes in with compassion and says, hey, you've got doubts. You've got questions. Come sit around the table with us. Let's talk about faith. Let's hear your story. Let's hear your questions. Let's honor the dignity of the space and the person. So what I love about Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery doesn't just say, just stop it. It says, no, you have hurts, you have habits, you have hangups. We're here to help. We want to surround you with a community of people that can help you walk into the way of freedom found in Jesus. So what I love about emotionally healthy discipleship, we all are carrying baggage from our family of origin that impacts our relationship with God and with other people. And EH says, let's talk about that. Let's be honest about it. Let's create space for that. And let's invite the spirit of God to help us learn what it means to love him and to love others. So what I love about our local outreach partners. What I love about Royal Family Kids and Safe Families and Springs Rescue Mission and all of those that we get to work with in our city, they're reaching out with compassion to those who are hurting in our city because it is the kindness of God that leads any of us to repentance. It's the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God that removes any splinter from any of our eyes. This is the way that we're called to live to live in this way toward one another. So I love how you live in your neighborhoods and in your homes, taking meals to people, visiting people in the hospital, coming alongside those that are in need with compassion, with care. Every invitation is different when it's extended in mercy and not in condemnation. Every invitation is different. That, of course, doesn't mean that others will receive what it is that we're offering. Doesn't mean that that will be received. And so maybe the most difficult and painful moments in our lives are what do we do when it's refused? What do we do when someone's uninterested in the gospel? When they're uninterested in correction, when they're uninterested in wisdom, they're uninterested in mercy, that they'd actually rather live with the splinter in their eye than receive help from us. This is where Jesus tells us to exercise wisdom. Again, Jesus forbids us from condemning others, but he doesn't call us to agree with or be okay with everything that everyone says or does. He doesn't call us to stay in relationship with everyone. We are still called to judge some things to some degree. We're called to be wise. We're called to use discernment. We're called to know what God calls right, what God calls good. And at times... Because of the way that other people are choosing to live, it means that we have to change our relationship with them. This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 7, 6. Don't give th- holy things to dogs and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. But that's hard. When relationships come to that place, that's heartbreaking. Sometimes it's terrifying. It should never be decided quickly or lightly or in isolation should always but be done in conversation with others. And what that requires all of us to do is to entrust everyone to Jesus. Now, ultimately, the thrust of this passage is are we willing to entrust everyone to Jesus? As Sarah and the worship team come forward. The great question that we ask in any passage as it relates to judgment, to any kind of judgment, is that the question is, do we trust Jesus to judge? Do we trust Jesus' judgment and what's right and wrong and good and evil and true and false? 
And do we trust Jesus' judgment of our loved ones? Do we trust Jesus' judgment of our enemies? Do we trust Jesus' judgment of the world? Do we trust Jesus' judgment of our neighbors and of strangers? Do we trust Jesus' judgment of those who have hurt us and those who have helped us? And do we trust Jesus' judgment of ourselves? Maybe that's the first question that we wrestle with. It's a question we wrestle with every time we come to the table. As we come to communion, we take a moment to examine ourselves, to do what Jesus tells us to do here, to see first what are the logs in our own eyes, to confess our sin, to repent, and to receive the mercy of God once again. Because until we receive the mercy of God, we cannot extend the mercy of God, brothers. We ask him for wisdom. And ultimately, we entrust ourselves and everyone that we love and everyone that we consider an enemy. We trust ourselves and everyone else into the loving judgment of Jesus. I want to invite you to do something practical with this word to us. Um, In just a minute, we're going to go through um, some words. We're going to do that examining of ourselves, you know, confessing what's true, asking for the mercy of God, receiving the mercy of God. But how do we entrust someone to Jesus? How do we keep from condemning someone or from um, misjudging someone? You can use this time as we come to the table um, using your imagination a couple of different ways. The first way is that you can imagine yourself as you receive these simple elements. You can imagine yourself giving someone over to Jesus. Is there a person that you have a hard time not judging? Is there a person who has brought distress to you in some way? Another way to use your imagination in this space, this is a space of sacredness and grace, and we're not the host of it. Jesus is the host of it. So you can actually imagine yourself bringing someone, not just to Jesus, but sort of staying there at the table, imagining Jesus offering himself to this person. It's a powerful thing to use our imaginations in that way. It can literally bring us physical, emotional, mental relief. So this is Jesus's table. All who believe that Jesus is the true king of the world are invited to receive here regardless of your church background or your affiliation. If you don't believe as we believe, thank you so much for coming this morning. We're so honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning here. We hope that you'll keep coming, that you'll keep asking questions about Jesus and his teachings. If you are ready to believe in Jesus and follow his teachings, we invite you to join us. First, we're gonna confess our sins. We're gonna ask for forgiveness. And then we're gonna place our trust in the love of God. During Lent, we've been using some words from um, King David in the Old Testament from Psalm 51 that he wrote after he had been caught in perhaps the most 
awful, humiliating, terrible thing of his entire life. We've been using these words to confess our sin and to ask for forgiveness. So the words will be on the screen. You can join me now. Purify me from my sin and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. It is my joy this morning to announce good news to us, words that are true, not because I'm saying them, but because of what God has done. So if you would like to, you can open your hands as an act of receiving again the mercy of God. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you please stand? We're gonna take a minute to greet those around us again and extend the mercy from Jesus to one another by saying these words, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. Let's greet each other this morning. As we come back together, the words to our liturgy are going to be on the screen. You can follow along. Jesus is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is. It's right. It's a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, because you formed us in your image. You breathed your life into us. And when our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you gave us your son to show us how to be faithful and also to be faithful on our behalf. In fact, on the night that he was gonna be handed over to suffering and death, he was celebrating the Passover feast with his friends. And during the meal, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had blessed it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After the supper was over, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, remember me. And so God, in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith. 
that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of a priesthood of all believers. So would you join me in blessing these elements by stretching out your hands toward them? Oh God, would you pour your Holy Spirit on us who are gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, would you make us one with Jesus, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until you come back in final victory and we see you face to face, God. I wanna invite the servers to come up now. These are the gifts of God. They are given for us, the people of God. I invite you to receive them in remembrance that Jesus loves you. He died for you. And as you receive them, feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In just a moment, we will come forward to receive. Just want to let anyone who's new know how this works. Um, starting with the front, you're going to exit to the left of each section and come forward. If you're unable to come forward, just ask someone around you to bring back some elements to you. If you're not receiving, please just go ahead and come forward so no one trips over you, but you're welcome to just pass the servers by and go back to your seat. The first server is going to take a gluten-free cracker, dip it into the cup of non-alcoholic wine and offer it to you with words of life. You can receive it right then and there, or you can carry it back to your seat and receive it with those around you. And if you'd prefer prepackaged elements, we've got some of those or some napkins and dispensers. There's gonna be two stations, so just alternate back and forth. And after everyone has received, our ministry teams here become uh, people who will pray with us. So if you would like to be prayed for, prayed with, prayed over, please take advantage of that after the service. So I wanna remind you as you come to receive today with your hands open, use your imagination. Who is someone that you want to bring with you to leave with Jesus or to receive communion with? Let's come together.